All right, today we are talking about myth. You know what I always like to say on this podcast, and what this podcast is all about. You know, t- uh, helping you think well about the scriptures, right? And part of that, part of thinking well about the scriptures, is reclaiming myth as part of our Christian faith and Christian worldview. Now, so many of us, when it comes to our faith and and thinking through what we believe, we suffer from this modernist enlightenment mindset that kind of gets forced upon us because of the world and the culture that we live in. If you don't know what the enlightenment is, it's a little hard to nail down in specific terms, but broadly speaking, the enlightenment was a movement of philosophy and culture in the 17th and 18th centuries that put an emphasis on logic and reason over dogma and blind faith, which is all well and good to a point, but because of that movement and how much it permeated Western culture, we now tend to think of history and myth as two separate categories, like fact or fiction, real or fake, true and untrue. These well-defined and separate categories. And that kind of mindset really does us a great disservice when it comes to how we approach scripture. And here's how this usually plays out. We'll have two groups of people, let's say. And on one side, we have this group of people saying things like, the Bible is just a book of myths, right? There there may be a few good life lessons that we can draw out from the teachings of Jesus, but at the end of the day, it's nothing more then a whole lot of fairy tale a whole lot of fairy tales it, it's fiction it's fake it's made up then on the other side we have people who take the more conservative approach and they say that no the bible is not a myth it's true more than that it is truth it's the inspired word of god and they take the bible as literal fact to the point of almost treating it like a textbook. So now we have this idea of myth and fiction on one side, history and facts on the other, and never between shall the two sides meet. However, this is not the definition of myth. This is not the way of thinking about myth that I think we should be working from. The definition of myth that I think we should be using comes from an author named Northrop Fry. Northrop Fry defined myth as stories that tell a society what is important for it to know, whether about its gods, its history, its laws, or its structures. I'll read that one more time. Uh, Northrop Fry defines myth as stories that tell a society what is important for it to know, whether about its gods, its history, its laws, or its structures. So myths, according to this definition, they don't have to automatically be fake or false or made up. Myth can be true. Myth can be historical or fictional. It can go either way. So to say that a story is mythic, it doesn't automatically mean it isn't true or it doesn't automatically mean that it's untrustworthy. But to say a story is mythic 
just means that it tells us something that we need to know about life. Let me give you an example from American history. Okay, I could read to you the Declaration of Independence. Or I could read to you just like word for word the Constitution of the United States. And depending on who you are, that may or may not resonate with you. Like some of you would probably love it. Some of you would probably be bored to tears if I did that. But if I told you the story of the Boston Tea Party, no taxation without representation, right? Or if I told you about Patrick Henry's impassioned speech and his amazing line about give me liberty or give me death. Or if I told you about Paul Revere's midnight ride, warning people that the redcoats are coming, the redcoats are coming. This is American mythology. And telling those stories evokes feelings of freedom and shows us the cost of liberty. These are real stories that actually happened. These were real people in history. But these stories are myth because it informs our national identity. Remember, we're trying to cast aside this enlightenment view of myth that means it's just a fable or a made-up story. I believe, and I think I'm in pretty good company with men much more brilliant than I am when I say this, but I believe that as Christians, we would do well to reconcile myth and truth together. G.K. Chesterton, in his book Everlasting Man, wrote that myth has at least an imaginative outline of truth. I absolutely love that. Now, you may or may not be familiar with Chesterton, and if you aren't, I'd absolutely recommend becoming familiar with him and his work. But even if you aren't familiar with G.K. Chesterton, you're probably familiar with the names of two other men who believe that myth has an imaginative outline of truth. And these two men are J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, two of the all-time greats. Now, when it comes to Christianity and myth, if you spend a lot of time looking at this kind of stuff on the internet, you're inevitably going to come across blogs and YouTube videos of people claiming that Jesus is just like a, a retelling of older myths about these gods from antiquity who died and rose again. I remember a lot, a, a lot of years ago now that uh, Christians were getting freaked out when this movie Zeitgeist, Zeitgeist, or I don't know how you say it, Zeitgeist. But anyway, you probably have heard of the movie, but this movie, and then more recently with um, uh, Bill Maher, Bill Maher's movie Religulous, those two movies uh, were freaking a lot of Christians out because they were saying that Jesus was just a repackaged version of the Egyptian god Horus. But really, those, those kinds of claims, they aren't anything new. This is actually something that C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien, they wrestled with this way back in the day. Now, Lewis has this famous quote from a conversation he had one day with Tolkien and another colleague of theirs named Hugo Dyson. From what I understand, uh, this conversation they were having was during a walk on the campus of Oxford College in England, and they were talking about different religious concepts. Now, just to give you some background, C.S. Lewis 
He was brought up in the Christian faith, but he had become an atheist for many years. And eventually, he warmed back up to the idea of God, or of a God at least, and he became a theist. So that's his spiritual location, if you will. So with, with that background in mind, that background of C.S. Lewis in mind, and where he is spiritually, we look at this conversation he's having with Tolkien and Dyson, and the conversation turns to the topic of myth. And C.S. Lewis has this famous quote that we read in Humphrey Carpenter's biography on Tolkien, where he tells Tolkien that myths are lies, even though lies breathed through silver. And Tolkien says something in response that kind of echoes G.K. Chesterton. Tolkien says to Lewis, no, they are not, just as speech is invention about objects and ideas, so myth is invention about truth. I think that is just such a great phrase. Myth is an invention about truth. And I love that because it opens the door for us as Christians to appreciate a wide array of cultures, literature, and stories that we might otherwise shy away from. But beyond that, even this, this look, way of looking at myth really takes the wind out of the sails for movies like Religulous and Zeitgeist or from other sources like internet blogs and YouTube videos, all of these places and these people that like to take shots at Christianity. And it was this conversation about religion and myth that actually became the catalyst for C.S. Lewis's ultimate return to the Christian faith. This is one reason why I love C.S. Lewis and his writing so much, and Tolkien too, for that matter. But with Lewis specifically, I think I'm so enamored with his work because of the way he came to faith in Jesus. Like I mentioned earlier, he was raised Christian, but he became an atheist, but his journey back to faith wasn't like like Lee Strobel or, or someone like that, where they went straight from atheist to becoming a believer in Jesus. Again, C.S. Lewis went from being an atheist to being a theist, someone who believes in a creator God that's just kind of out there somewhere. And one of the things that kept Lewis from becoming a full-on confessing Christian for a long time was his knowledge of all of these uh, myths from antiquity that had stories about a God who died and rose again. There was this book called The Golden Bough that was published in 1890 and really, really popular at that time. And it compared and studied all of these stories. And James Frazier, the author of that book, he called this motif of a God that dies and rises again, he called this uh, motif of this character the Corn King. And this title, Corn King, might sound kind of weird, but it has to do with the, the fact that all of these gods and all of these stories, they were uh, fertility gods. They were vegetation deities, and their dying and rising was always tied to ensuring that there would be a good harvest of wheat or, or of corn, hence the name Corn King. And if you look at all of those myths that share this common theme about a God who dies and rises again, and you look at a scripture like John 12, 24, and where Jesus says to his, 
uh, his disciples, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, the the connections are, are pretty obvious. There always has to be some kind of death before there can be a harvest. So yeah, there, there's commonality there. And C.S. Lewis looked at all of that and said, okay, Jesus must just be like the Hebrew version of this corn king myth. Again, this is like a go-to attack for non-believers who like to post conspiracy theories online and take shots at Christianity. And they point to these gods like Balder and Tammuz and Mithras, Osiris, Adonis. Heck, even Baal dies and comes back. Most of us recognize Baal from reading the Old Testament. He's the guy the Israelites keep going to worship and forsaking Yahweh for. But but anyway, C.S. Lewis chalked Jesus up to be just another story in a long list of myths about gods who died and rose again, much like people today do. Right, A lie breathed through silver is what Lewis called it. A story that is good, a story that might even be beautiful and might even be useful to teach us something, but a lie nevertheless. That's how Lewis saw the story of Jesus. But that quote about myths being lies breathed through silver didn't just prompt Tolkien's profound response that myths are inventions about truth. Tolkien actually wrote a whole poem about this in true Tolkien fashion. And this poem is called uh, Mythopoeia. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that word. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've heard it a couple different of ways, but I just said it the way I said it. So I feel like I'm now committed to Mythopoeia, which is fine. But this is a word that means myth maker. Mythopoeia means myth maker. And this is a poem that Tolkien actually dedicated to C.S. Lewis. And I just want to read a passage from it. If you've never read this poem, you can find it online. You can just Google Mythopoeia J.R.R. Tolkien. That's uh, M-Y-T-H-O-P-O-E-I-A. And then just Tolkien's name. So just Google that and it'll come up. It's a brilliant, beautiful enigmatic poem, and I think you'll get a real sense of that from this passage here. He sees no stars who does not see them first, of living silver made that sudden burst, to flame like flowers beneath the ancient song, whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth, unless the mother's womb, whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship one he owned, his world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build, 
gods and their houses out of dark and light. And so the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. You know, a lot of times, like I said earlier, we, we treat the Bible like a textbook. And we try to distill from it the basic doctrines of our faith, which is important. It does have its place. I mean, honestly, my entire education, well, actually, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but a lot of my education is basically learning how to do just that, distilling from the Bible the basic doctrines of our faith. But in doing so, we sometimes tend to lose the wonder of the story, the wonder of the myth. And I think when we read the Mythopoeia poem, we see that for Tolkien, myth is the means by which truth touches the heart of men. Myth does what explanation can't. Myth or Mythopoeia is the language of transcendence. And if you read the entire poem from beginning to end, you can see how Tolkien pushes back against this reductionist worldview that wants to reduce existence to the material world, where all that is is all that's in front of us and a, a place where logic and reason are worshipped. And logic and reason has its place, but like Tolkien, we would do well to reject that reductionist worldview and realize that there is a spiritual world out there where truth comes from. And truth goes beyond this natural material world. And with that, it can go beyond the barriers of time and culture and language. This is what I mean when I say transcendence. You know, when you study theology, you come across these concepts of special revelation and general revelation. I'll tell you what I mean. God chose to reveal specifically in special ways to the Hebrew people through the law, the Torah, and through the prophets. And later on, for us as Christians, we include the gospel writers and the apostles. And eventually, this all gets compiled into the Bible. So the Bible is God's special revelation for mankind given through the Jewish people. But that doesn't mean God left the rest of the world high and dry. See, when God created the material universe, he embedded it with a sense of his truth. And when he created human beings, he made us in his image. This is why there's so much commonality between the Bible and these other ancient myths, because the truth is transcendent. These other cultures are touching on it in their stories. This is that general revelation that God gave the pagans. They still bear the image of God, even though the image is fragmented. They still can't get away from bearing it in bits and pieces. So even though their stories are perversions of the truth, there's still truth in it. This is Tolkien's take on things, and it becomes a crucial part of how he helps to bring C.S. Lewis back to Christ. Going back to that uh, famous conversation Lewis and Tolkien were having, again, this is documented in uh, Humphrey Carpenter's biography on Tolkien. 
But after Tolkien replies to Lewis that myths are inventions about truth, the conversation didn't end there. Tolkien kept on going, and he said, We have come from God, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Indeed, only by myth-making, only by becoming a sub-creator and inventing stories can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. Our myths may be misguided, but they steer, however shakily, towards the true harbor, where materialistic progress leads only to a yawning abyss and the iron crown of the power of evil. You mean, asked Lewis, that the story of Christ is simply a true myth? A myth that works on us in the same way as the others, but a myth that really happened? In that case, he said, I begin to understand. And C.S. Lewis not only began to understand, but this mythic way of thinking became the catalyst that led to the scales falling from his eyes entirely. Eventually, Lewis would write a whole essay about this called The Myth That Became Fact. And you can read this essay. It's been anthologized in a book called God in the Dock. I can't recommend it enough. Basically, I recommend anything and everything written by C.S. Lewis. But, but listen to what he writes in this essay, The Myth That Became Fact. Human intellect is incurably abstract. Pure mathematics is the type of successful thought. Yet the only realities we experience are concrete. This pain, this pleasure, this dog, this man. While we are loving the man, bearing the pain, enjoying the pleasure, we are not intellectually apprehending pleasure, pain, or personality. When we begin to do so, on the other hand, the concrete realities sink to the level of mere instances or examples. We are no longer dealing with them, but with that which they exemplify. This is our dilemma, either to taste and not to know, or to know and not to taste, or more strictly to lack one kind of knowledge because we are in an experience, or to lack another kind because we are outside it. As thinkers, we are cut off from what we think about. As tasting, touching, willing, loving, hating, we do not clearly understand. The more lucidly we think, the more we are cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting nor analyze the nature of human or of humor while roaring with laughter. But when else can you really know these things? If only my toothache would stop, I could write another chapter about pain. But once it stops, what do I know about pain? Of this tragic dilemma, myth is the partial solution. In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction. At this moment, for example, I am trying to understand something very abstract indeed, the fading, vanishing of tasted reality 
as we try to grasp it with the discursive reason. Probably I have made heavy weather of it. But if I remind you, instead, of Orpheus and Eurydice, how he was suffered to lead her by the hand, but when he turned round to look at her, she disappeared, what was merely a principle becomes imaginable. You may reply that you never till this moment attached that meaning to that myth. Of course not. You were not looking for an abstract meaning at all. If that was what you were doing, the myth would be for you no true myth, but a mere allegory. You were not knowing, but tasting. But what you were tasting turns out to be a universal principle. The moment we state this principle, we are admittedly back in the world of abstraction. It is only while receiving the myth as a story that you experience the principle correctly. And basically, I read all of that just to get to this last line. It is only while receiving the myth as a story that you experience the principle correctly. Life isn't just what we see in front of us. It's more than just eating food and going to work and coming home and eating more food and then going to bed. You know, we, we hear this all of, all of the time. People say, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. There's something in the hearts of man that longs for transcendence. And myth is the language of that transcendence. Myth is the meta-narrative or the overall story that gives meaning to our own individual stories. See, I could throw out theological terms like propitiation and substitutionary atonement, these profound principles of truth within the Christian faith, but it would mean nothing to us without the story of humanity becoming estranged from God and that God incarnates himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes and he lives on the earth and he dies on the cross and suffers this horrific death on the cross, but gets raised to life three days later and he bears our sins and takes away our sins and makes us right with God. And he does it just for us. This overall, this meta narrative, this story gives meaning to our own story and the myth gives meaning to the principal truths. Let me go back to Lewis one more time. He wrote, those who do not know that this great myth became fact when the virgin conceived are indeed to be pitied. But Christians also need to be reminded. We may thank Quirinius for reminding us that what became fact was a myth, that it carries with it into the world of fact all the properties of a myth. God is more than a god, not less. Christ is more than Balder, not less. We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christs, these corn kings. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. We must not, in false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopoeic, and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be 
mythopathic, or should we refuse to embrace myth? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth, transcendence, perfect myth and perfect fact, claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and delight addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet in each one of us no less than to the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher. I love that line about how we must not be afraid of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We don't have to shy away from these great stories from the Norse peoples or from the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Babylonians or the Persians. Because even though God was dealing specifically with the Hebrew people, he still loved the Babylonians. He still loved the Greeks and all these people. The image of God they carried may have been fragmented, but they carried the image nonetheless. And their stories, even though it was in a twisted way, their stories still touched on the transcendent truths God embedded into his creation. So we don't have to be nervous that there are similarities between the Bible and the great myths of these other cultures. Rather, we can lean into them. Okay, so when some internet blogger tries to tell you that Jesus is just a repackaged Taurus, I mean, look, it's nonsense, right? You don't have to be afraid of that language. You can lean into it. We can appreciate those myths and those stories, and we can glean from them because they reveal to us the human condition that all of us long for, transcendence and purpose and a sense of belonging. These, these desires can only be fulfilled and truly satisfied by the gospel. These truths are revealed perfectly in the Bible, but there are also resonances of these truths throughout the myths of the pagans. Because as Lewis said, if the parallels weren't there, it would be a stumbling block, right? Like I just said, God loves the whole world, right? So of course he would choose to redeem humanity in a way that both fulfills the law and the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible and in a way that speaks to the hearts and minds of the pagans. Now, the famous psychologist uh, Carl Jung would tell us that this commonality of mythic archetypes, like a great, a great flood, or the dying and rising God, or the theme of a good versus evil where it appears that evil is about to win, but at the last minute, the side of good comes through and wins out. Jung would tell us that all of this comes from our collective unconscious. Like the whole of humanity shares one big memory bank that we all draw from and it manifests in our stories and in our myths. I kind of agree with Jung on that point. The difference is that I believe that this collective unconscious or this yearning for transcendence that we all share, it comes from our creator whose greatest desire is fellowship with his creation. So again, we don't have to ignore these myths. We don't have to ignore creation myths like Enuma Elish. We don't have to dismiss the great flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh. We don't have to be afraid of 
Mithras and Tammuz and Baldur and all of these gods who died and rose again. And we can actually expand this today. If, if those people who are far from the God of the Bible are still reflecting bits and pieces of his image, then we can expect to find bits and pieces of truth in a variety of places. Places like, like the ancient myths that we've been talking about, but also places like the great poets Virgil and Homer. Also teachings from Buddhism and Confucius. Even modern books and movies like Star Wars or The Avengers. Heck, Lewis and Tolkien wrote their own great myths, the worlds of Narnia and Middle-earth. We can find truth embedded in all of these places. This is why great books and movies can speak to us and resonate with our souls. We're attracted to these kinds of stories for a reason. Now, I'm not suggesting that other religions or ancient myths where movies are on par with Christianity because they aren't, but they do all have truth. It's just that the Bible, as Lewis Marcus put, Lewis Marcos put it, is the only complete truth. So when someone asks, is the Bible history or myth? The answer is yes. These are stories about things that actually happened. And they tell us what God wants us to know about himself, his nature, our world, and what it means to be human. We're reclaiming myth on this podcast because it belongs to us. Messiah Jesus anchors myth within history. So now we are embracing the mythical radiance of our theology, as Lewis says. And the fact that the gospel resembles the myths of the pagans should not take us further from, but push us closer to the person of Messiah Jesus, who in real historical time was God on the earth. And through his incarnation, death, and resurrection, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets. But not only that, he also fulfills the deepest yearnings of the pagans, and he draws all men unto himself. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope it's provoked you to think. And if you want to get uh, deeper into this subject, uh, please go to the episode notes and check out some of those books that I'm recommending. It'll, it'll really bless you. We're reclaiming myth on this podcast because myth belongs to us and in reclaiming myth will help us to think well about the scriptures. Before we go, I just want to invite you again to subscribe to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcasts and we'll see you on the next episode.